Hi, friends, and welcome to All Things Relatable, a place where stories are shared. It's hard to put a value on a story because the lasting effects it can have are often priceless. An individual's story has the potential to impact our lives in tremendous ways. My hope for you in joining me today is that this episode resonates with you and that you leave enlightened, ignited, and inspired because it only takes one moment to spark a change and leave an everlasting effect. Hey friends, I wanted to start this episode off by highlighting the fact that we all have the ability to make changes in our lives and where you currently are is not where you have to stay. Sometimes we forget that we actually have the option to make the changes that we desire. Change starts by taking teeny tiny, medium or gigantic steps. They all count. And sometimes the inspiration for change comes in little whispers and other times it comes in loud and in your face. My next guest, Katie Spots, went from being a bench warmer to becoming an endurance athlete. The adventures that Katie's been on are book worthy. And guess what? Katie has written a book on her journey across the Atlantic Ocean. Katie became the youngest person to row solo across the Atlantic on a 70-day journey that she completed solo without a follow boat. Katie's completed five Ironmans, cycled across the United States, swam a 325-mile river, run a hundred miles nonstop in 20 hours and ran 11 ultra marathons in 11 consecutive days to fund 11 water projects in Uganda. Is there anything that Katie won't do? Katie is a charitable ambassador and is taking on challenge after challenge, raising funds to make sure people have access to clean drinking water. Hey, Katie, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so there's so much I want to dive into, but let's start with what we all want to know. How do you go from bench warmer to rowing the Atlantic Ocean? Yeah, so it was it was a journey to get there for sure. And I, as a kid, did all the team sports. Every sport with a ball and a court and a field I tried from basketball, baseball, soccer, And I was physically there, but mentally I just, you know, I wasn't that competitive as a kid. If I was playing baseball, I'd be picking dandelions. I, I wasn't really, you know, tuned in. And so I assumed the position of bench warmer. And once you sit on the bench for long enough and you're just, you know, thinking about life and you're like, whoa, okay, well, I'm just not that fit and I'm not that athletic. So I'll just focus on something else. And so pretty much at a young age, middle school, I, I wrote it off that I'm just not an athlete. And so during my senior year of high school, I needed to take this mandatory physical education class to get my diploma. And, uh, I didn't want to do it. I was trying to avoid it. I was trying to get a doctor's note or write an essay about how great physical fitness is. I don't know. I, And so I couldn't. And so naturally the thing I I try to do next is find the easiest class. And so that was a walk, uh, jog, run class. And um, I I did that. And, um, you know, I was pretty stubborn about it. Like, ah, this is a waste of time. I don't want to be here. And after walking for a few weeks and putting in that bare minimum effort, I was curious and just thinking, you know, if I actually tried, is it physically possible? Is my body capable of running one mile? Like, could I do it? 
And I didn't have pressure from coaches or letting down teammates. And so in my mind, it was like, well, there's nothing to lose. So I tried and it most certainly wasn't a Nike moment. I didn't know anything (laughs) about pacing myself and just kind of blew out the gate and was holding on for dear life until the end of that eight lap uh, attempt. But it was a very defining moment because it was like, wow, wait, I had a story and the story said, I can't do this and I can't do that. And I'm not this and I'm not that. And that story was so strong that it became reality. And, and that one mile was enough to like open a door. There was a little crack for me to walk through and be like, okay, wait, what, when I get the story out, when I let go of my preconceived notions on what's possible, what's, what's really there. And so um, you know, it, that, that one mile gave me the courage to do two to three and, and it was a very gradual, you know, kind of thing. And, um, I did it mainly on my own. I wasn't really worried about my pace and kind of just tuned into how I felt. And after doing the first marathon, it was kind of like the rest is history because not necessarily because anything that I did, but what I saw in terms of the other people doing the race. And so there were people that maybe wouldn't be your, you know, runner's body. And and it made me realize that a runner's body is any body that runs a marathon. And so the, the row was probably my biggest challenge. And it really, you know, everything you do in life is a building block and it gives you the confidence to do what's to come. So I would have never imagined after doing my first marathon rowing the Atlantic. And so there were other challenges and um, yeah, so there was a cycle across America, a swimming challenge, and then the row happened after that. And that was a huge leap of faith for sure. Um, I didn't even know how to row when I decided to do that, but I did have that background in endurance and even though the motion may be different, the process of, you know, maybe embracing discomfort and finding, you know, a space that feels good. And there is a lot in the endurance space about like no pain, no gain. And, and, and to me, it can be very joyful and it could be very life-giving and it might not feel that way at first, but I, I feel like you know, the endorphins and the rush and the sense of accomplishment is really a special thing. And, and you're, you're your greatest limitation. And um, that's, that's just, yeah, it's a very special journey and a very personal journey, but um, it's, it's one, I think mirrors the rest of your life. I mean, what you learn through those small challenges can help you in, in, you know, life outside of it, because truthfully, The world doesn't necessarily change because people are running around and biking around, but the mindset that you come away with, the person you become, the confidence, the um, understanding that we're capable than more capable than we think is, is, is definitely a lesson that has applications all around the world and across the board. Yeah, that all is just absolutely unbelievable. So it kind of sounds like it was a little whisper from yourself. Okay. One mile, I can do one mile and and changing your mindset. I feel like that 
is really the most important shift. Like regardless of where you are in your physical body, once you had that shift in your mindset, that little tiny whisper, that little baby step, how long was it from your first mile that you sprinted and held on for dear life for until your next um, marathon? Or was that your first, like, I guess, big event would be the marathon? The marathon. So there were people already in that class who were kind of using it as a training tool and the instructor kind of had some advice about it. So the marathon was my, my very first endurance challenge. And, um, I knew that after that, I wanted to try something else. And that is a, a typical like theme or thread of like, sometimes when you do the same things over and over again, it, you lose that beginner mindset of like, having no expectations, no preconceived, um, yeah, expectations and, and stories. And so I really enjoy doing different things because it, it gets you in that curious, just exploring, just discovering. And so I did switch to cycling and I knew that eventually I thought it would be cool to do an Ironman. So I was like, oh, okay, well maybe I'll focus on cycling. And so the next challenge was just that. And it was a 3,300 mile bike ride from one side of the country to the next. And there's so many moments on my journey where, you know, logic doesn't make sense, but there might be a sign or, or something like that, that nudges me. And for that one, it was a ride dedicated to raising money for the American Lung Association. And my grandma had recently passed away from lung disease. And as her uh, first granddaughter, she actually gave up smoking the day I was born. And so it was just like, I got to do it. I don't have a bike. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what chamois butter is. I don't know what, you know, what these shorts are and what's going on with this electrolyte drinks. And, but I, I knew that, you know, if you have a strong enough, why you can figure out how, um, yeah, hows are, are not as important if you have your purpose, if you know why you're there and can kind of, yeah, keep that at, at, as the focus and at the center. Um, so a lot of trial and error, but there were 40 other cyclists for that one. So that was a really good kind of starter challenge because it put me with people that were decades older who had been doing endurance for quite a while. And so I was definitely like the youngest female by, I think a decade, but I came, I definitely came to endurance early. And so, um, that was helpful to get out all those, you know, beginner mistakes with (laughs) nutrition and getting the right fit and pacing and heart rate. And there's a lot to learn. I know. I'm just thinking to that. Like I, um, hike, I guess a backcountry hike. And I remember coming back, like it was my first actual overnight in the woods, got over my fear of bears. And so we hiked into the woods and then we hiked out and then we ended up like, I think we were an hour or two from Jasper and Alberta. So then we get to the town, we ordered takeout on the way I sat as my husband and his friend were in the grocery store and basically ate like a whole pizza and wings. <laughs> and I was like, 
I need to reevaluate my food choices. Like I was starving the whole time. I felt like I was eating like dried up, like sand with whatever I pack. Like, so when you first, I mean, it's trial and error. Absolutely. You're like, never do that again. Um, so when you went in, like as a beginner and curious, did you, um, have different mentors that would kind of help you along the way, or did you try to kind of figure it out on your own? And then when all like shit hit the fan or things didn't go right, then reach out, like, what was your process kind of like? Um, so I, in the earlier days, I definitely read a lot and I got more into, I'd say for Iron Man you have to be a little bit more on top of everything because you have one shot one day um for biking across america i mean you could go faster or slower but you have with with races it's a very i honestly feel like i've trained harder for an ironman than some of the other feats that are longer duration but you have time to rest recover you know take breaks and uh, I did a lot of just, yeah, reading different books and, um, I worked with, uh, this, um, at Cleveland state at this local college, they had a human performance lab. And so I was able to do things where I can calculate what my heart rate was. And I did get into that kind of thing in the early days, just, and now I don't use it anymore because I, I go based on feel because I understand what I should feel like during like key workouts. But um, nutrition was, you know, I have friends that are way faster than me on short distances and we do longer distances and then that's where I can excel. And I think a big part of it is the nutrition. And I had to learn that if you feel famished at the end, you did not feel enough and um, my last event was probably the best fueling I, I've experienced with, it was actually mainly liquid based. So for running 11 ultras, so it was a 50 K every day or 31 miles every day. For the most part, it was tailwind and it's like an electrolyte mix. And then I just had watermelon and bananas just so my stomach had something to digest so at the end of the day, when I ate a normal meal, it wasn't like shrunk stomach to overexpanded and didn't shock my system to have food again. But it was as simple as that, like oatmeal in the morning with um, peanut butter and, you know, nut seeds and tailwind all day. Uh, I think their, their slogan is like, all you need all day. And it's true. Okay. What is that? What is tailwind? Tailwind? It's very popular in the ultra community, but it's, uh, it's an electrolyte mix. So there's, I mean, there's a lot in that space where it's like no sugar and all fat. And I think that's actually dangerous, but, uh, because you are, unless you're a fat adapted, you know, you change your system, but yeah, if you don't have sugar and it's not going to your brain, you're going to you know, you can crash, you can faint. And so I, I do, I mean, it's, it's basically, um, it has those electrolytes and, and the sugars to help you. And I mean, when you do activity, you use so much energy to go forward that you don't want to waste energy, any energy breaking down food. So a lot of it does have to do with 
fueling. Like I think one third of the energy in food is used to digest it. So if you don't have to use a third of that energy and it could just be all liquid based, I think that's very helpful, but um, they have lots of like the bars and the gels and that kind of thing too. But yeah, all liquid fueling. Check them out. Have to check them out. Okay. So you went from then, you know, you had, you had your why you wanted to raise money for the lung association. So then you talked about your 11, what was it? Ultra marathons in 11 days. And you raised uh, funds for water projects in Uganda and water is something that is really like near and dear to your heart. So what's the why behind that? Yeah. So around the same time I was getting um, more interested and passionate about endurance, I was going to school in Australia and I was, um, you know, in Melbourne and they had a 10 year drought. So I started seeing things like rules on when you could wash your car or water your grass. And I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. For me, water is the thing we waste all the time. Golf courses, water parks, you can go to any restaurant and get it for free. And so I, it just never registered as being this precious resource. And seeing the perpetual fear of water running out in a very developed country had me like, oh, wow, wow, water. And, and, and then I took an environmental science class and my professor, you know, just kind of casually one day in class, we're talking about things. And she said that the wars of the future will be on water. And in some countries, it's already the case. And, and that was like, what do you mean war? Like there's countries at war for water. And so at that time it was a billion right now it's around 800 million. So it is trending in the right direction. Um, but for me, the biggest shock was I've spent 20 years in my life not knowing that one, at the time, one in six people have this as their, this is their life story. This is what they do all day. This is their biggest problem. And it's a solvable problem. I just, I couldn't imagine tw- not hearing from one in six of our global population what was happening in their world. And so I got angry and I got like, you know, I went through this thing where it was like, we could do better. Like we put people into space. We have airplanes, we have technology, we have all these crazy, amazing things. I'm pretty sure we're capable of water. And after finding out about the magnitude of the problem, you see that there's charities out there. Sometimes it's as little as $5. Sometimes it's, you know, $50, but it's, it's a very doable, uh, you know, contribution to make an impact that doesn't it's not just health but it's education kids can't go to school if they're collecting water all day or if they're too sick because they're drinking dirty water women can't get jobs if they're collecting water all day I mean it has an environmental toll if you don't have latrines and so it is I mean if you care about environment if you care about health if you care about kids if you care about education if you care about women I mean this water water I And the great thing is that we don't always agree about everything, but everyone can agree to clean water. I've never in the past decade of doing all this had anyone say like, no, I don't think people should have clean water. That's a terrible idea. (laughs) We need it and we have it and we should get it to the people who need it yesterday. But, you know, 
Yes. It's all, all driving you forward. So after you did, you know, got really fired up and mad, I feel like that is such a game changer or like a movement changer is when somebody gets angry about something. Because when you get angry, it sparks something within you that you just can't ignore. And you have to, you know, many times we have to do something about it. So that is so cool how you, you know, being a foreigner coming in to this developed country and being, you know, maybe people there, that was their normal, like, okay, we're only watering the lawn on Monday, or maybe once, whatever it was, but coming in, like, what, what's going on here? And then, yeah, really digging into it. And that makes total sense that it could be the next war, right? The war on water where we're all just want clean drinking water. So once you did your, your ultras and you helped raise money for all of these, um, projects in Uganda, like what was the, was there like a hit of, I don't know what, how to even describe it, but did you actually see the effects that it was having firsthand? I have visited projects in, uh, Kenya and I helped with building some of those in South Africa and in India. And with all the endurance challenges, it's about 50,000 people all around the world. So there's projects in South and Central America, uh, through all throughout Africa and India. And they're the latest projects that I'm, uh, looking to fund are in the Navajo nation here in the United States. So in Utah and Arizona and New Mexico. So, uh, yeah, it's, there's, there's different solutions. I mean, there's rainwater harvesting, which is probably the least in invasive, like, and then there's wells and boreholes, there's bio sand filters. And even being in Kenya, you could go one place and there's rainy season. And so you have a consistent, you know, source of water that just needs to be fil- filtered and collected. And then you go to the other part of the country and there's like droughts so wells are the only way. And so it really is, uh, you know, there are solutions, but they're not, it's not like a one, one size fits all kind of thing. Wow. Um, okay. So what was it that led you then to rowing? Yeah. So while I was in Australia, I did my first ultra marathon and um, that was a hundred kilometer run, um, uh, 62 miles. And I think, you know, whenever you do something you never thought you could, I think there can be this awakening, this like, wow, what are all the other things I'm telling myself that I can't do that maybe I'm wrong about because I was wrong about that. And I I think what's also very encouraging about doing that particular run in Australia is they have a very upbeat, you know, fun loving kind of energy. And uh, it was just, yeah, I mean, of course it was miserable and there were hard parts about it, but they have such a positive spin and attitude about it that I, I think that helps shape, you know, what endurance can be. It doesn't have to be a big suffer fest. You can, you know, find joy in the chaos of it all and the craziness. And so I was on a bus right after that race. 
uh, like a couple of weeks and I talked to some random guy just sitting next to me and we're talking about endurance challenges and we, you know, I, I thought I was this know-it-all and I kind of blocked it out. I was like, oh gosh, I, I heard it all. I know it all. Climbing Everest, sailing around the world, but you know, and so he mentioned his friend rode across the Atlantic and I'm just like, what? And I didn't even believe him. I just, it blew my mind away. I didn't, and, and what drew me in was just, um, we have an escape button, you know, we have our way out. We can cancel, we can postpone, we can take a nap, we can hang out with friends. We can, I mean, there's, there's so many ways to, you know, run away from problems, I guess. And I really was drawn towards, you know, the only option you have out on that ocean without a follow boat is to overcome whatever happens there. That's your only option. And there was something very liberating when that's all you can do because you don't even think about quitting at that point. Because I mean, I honestly think if I had a follow boat, I would have quit because if it was that easy to quit. And so I think that is kind of one lesson that could be taken is like, don't make it so easy to quit and make it, make it easier to do the hard thing. And so I, you know, I ignored the idea. I was like, wow, that's crazy. I, uh, it's expensive. I'm a broke college kid and have student loans. I, you know, I don't want to die and I don't know how to row. So <laughs> I, I tried to talk myself out of it, but at a certain point, I was just wrestling with the idea that I couldn't forget it. I couldn't not wonder. I couldn't daydream. I couldn't, you know, help but want to know and it's just that curiosity that I couldn't read a book and be okay I wanted to know what it felt like I wanted to know what it felt like to be see the stars I want to know what it felt like to be that exhausted and keep going I wanted to know what it felt like to be without people and see you know see where my mind went would I go crazy what's going to happen it was just this big unknown big experiment and I mean, it was, it was everything. It was all the highs, all the lows, all packed in one. And um, I mean, at times it was definitely like this national geographic life experience with, you know, 25 foot waves and, and sharks and dolphins and sea turtles. And it was also very boring. There were some days where I was like, I would, uh, you know, anything sounds interesting at this point because you know, I did have audiobooks and podcasts and comedians and music, but adventure is kind of like sheer boredom with all like spikes of just, you know, chaos. So. And you survived it. Like, I just, that's unbelievable. Like you decided like, I'm going to go out on the ocean, no follow boat. And I just have to figure it out. Like putting yourself in that uncomfortable situation. Like I can't just hit the, hit the button and get out of this. I have to actually keep going. So how did you make it through some of those like really hard moments when you were out there all alone in the dark? Yeah. Like I think, so if there wasn't a higher purpose, I think it would have been hard to keep going because it's like, well, who cares? Like, but knowing that there was water and people were getting water like when you can't be strong enough for yourself you can be strong enough for people you care about and a cause you care about so that was a big part of it um i mean 
the motivation to row 10 to 12 hours a day wasn't that difficult because if I wasn't rowing, I'd be in a cabin that was like as hot as a sauna and doing nothing, staring at a wall. And so, and you feel seasick, more seasick out in the cat in the cabin than you would out rowing. So by default, the best thing you could do on our ocean rowboat is row. So no motivation. It's just like, but there was a moment at the halfway point where, you know, I do endurance challenges and halfway is a big hooray because it's like, you can say to yourself, oh, I'm closer to the end than I am to the start. I know what it took to get here. So now I know what it would take me to get to the end. And it was like, not that at all. It was, I gave everything I had to get halfway. I cannot imagine doing that again. Now I'm the farthest human from anyone on the planet. Like I, I can't even, and so it did in that moment feel like, yeah, I wasn't very happy. So the reframe, the reframe was I wasn't rowing 3000 miles. I was rowing one mile, 3000 times. So I, I really let go of the big picture and focused on the next step. And truthfully, all the big things, everything you do is one baby step in front of the other. And, um, we do this already. I mean, all throughout life. And so you just kind of have to look at it that way, but I think you really have to feel called to do certain things. Otherwise, I mean, first of all, if you feel called to do it, you don't require motivation. You like you intuitively know that there's something for you to learn in that experience and you're willing to wait to see what that is. And truthfully, a lot of the learning happened after the row and when I had time to process what that was. Um, but when you feel called to something, um, I don't think you need as much like forcing. It's just more, um, patience more than forcing. I mean, one of my events, I was on the side of the road crying and like having a pity party and just giving myself the permission to feel the weight of that was enough. And then I just kept running. Like you're allowed, sometimes feelings just want to be felt. So you're, uh, you might feel things doing hard things and you can feel them and just keep going. Yeah. Keep going. Wow. What a great reframe. I think anybody listening, instead of doing 3000 miles, doing one mile, 3000 times that you just saying that I was like, Oh, that's way easier. You can do that like one mile at a time. So, I mean, some of us in our lives, whatever um, journey we're on, we're like, looking at the end thinking there is absolutely no way it's overwhelming, exhausting me to think about it. But when you reframe like that and just take it in the little tiny baby steps, then it makes it seem so doable. Totally. Yeah. Um, and you also said, okay, so when you're on these challenges and you're cycling or you're running and then in this rowing in this boat, do you, you said rowing, you kind of reflected after you got back and then you realized like kind of what you took away or what you learned, but it seems like in rowing, there'd be a lot more time to go like deep and within it, you know, I, I don't know if this is true or not. If you're cycling, do you have time to think about, or are you just like laser focused on what you're doing and running? Like, is, is there time to think in that? And did you think when you were rowing, like you come closer to home within yourself and all that time. 
Yeah, I would say out of all the experiences, the row was the most, like the greatest opportunity to really reflect because I didn't have, I had, I had so much freedom of thought because I, when I landed, I was just so overwhelmed by decisions. Like that was the hardest thing. Um, but when I was on the row, I didn't need to think about what am I eating? What am I doing? What am I wearing? What am I listening to? Who am I hanging out with? What am I going to do next week? Well, wait, will this fit in my schedule? Like all of that was wiped away. And so I, I, I definitely could kind of, you know, get, in a place that I wouldn't have ever been able to get had I been kind of in the more day-to-day. -day. And I think one of the most encouraging things about spending 70 days completely alone is that one, I didn't feel lonely. I felt overwhelmed. I felt, you know, tired, but I never felt lonely. And, um, I think that has a lot to say when you're doing hard things, it's important to have people that you know are there, even if they're not there physically, but they're, you know, emotionally. And I did have a satellite phone and I was able to, you know, maintain contact um, by email and that kind of thing. But even if I didn't have emails or the phone, I still had this sense of like all the me positive memories of all the relationships and knowing that that's what I would be coming back to. It wasn't, there was not this, I'm so lonely by being alone. So alone could not, I mean, I think even with COVID, like alone does not have to feel like that. That it could be energizing and I am an introvert. So I'm definitely gonna say a lot of positive things about alone time, but I also think it's like, whether we realize it or not, sometimes there are things that we can do to almost like escape ourselves or run away from something within us. And because of all that time, it, you know, I guess kind of more comfortable in your own skin and realizing that, um, yeah, like you don't have to be afraid of yourself. Like what's, what you're going to, what's going to happen if you don't have this or that. And that there's a lot of peace that comes from, from that space. But of course, when I got home, I wanted to see my friends and family and of course, you know, hugs and hangouts and all that. Um, so I do have people. It's just, I, uh, I think the, the biggest unknown in that other than the rowing was I've never spent more than two days by myself. Maybe if there was a snowstorm and I couldn't leave the house, like, so I was very afraid, like, am I going to go crazy? And if you even see the worst form of punishment, like what happens to bad guys when they need the worst punishment and it's solitary confinement, like that is the worst it gets. And so I was like, so I'm willingly doing the thing that is the worst. And so there's, I know there's a huge difference between choice, the choice of doing that versus being forced into that. But um, meditation was a big tool that helps me, um, you know, I guess take things less personally and, um, understand that no matter how strong I felt an emotion, it was going to pass. And even in the moments when I thought about quitting, I'm like, well, it probably will take them two days to get here. And by that time I'll probably change my mind. So, and that <laughs> was 
pretty much one of the main reasons I did it because I knew that give me four hours and I'll feel something else. I mean, you're raw. You are just so raw, especially with the sleep deprivation. And I mean, I think that's one of the great things about doing that challenge solo is like, I don't know on the grumpy days if I would want to put, put anyone through being around me because you know, you're raw, you're in a very raw, vulnerable state of exhaustion. And, um, but yeah, there's definitely gifts in that too, of seeing things, having those aha moments. And I did write a book, uh, just keep rolling with 70 different life lessons that, uh, the ocean, the ocean taught me. Yeah. Wow. How cool is that? And I think you bring up a good point. I know you have like, go, go, go in some of these and challenges, but then how great is it to, I know some people fear it, like sitting by themselves and just having pockets of time to be alone with themselves. Cause when you can actually get to a point in your life where it feels really good to be with you, you know, doing the work and figuring it out. Like it's really lovely to have that. Right. And just like, yeah, it doesn't have to be lonely. It can be the most, I mean, I love being alone. I love, I love being with people. I'm so social. I love, and then I also love my alone time and I love hanging out with myself. So if, you know, somebody's listening and they, always are filling every single moment of the day. Maybe, maybe don't row across the Atlantic. Maybe, maybe that's the next thing. Um, if you're point feeling pulled to it, but like find some space to wander or do something where you're by yourself. So. Yeah. I really like how you said with myself, like that's, that's it. When you're like, Oh, you're all by yourself. No, I'm with myself. Like, yes. <laughs> Okay. No, you have to run soon and I want to respect your time. So I have a couple final questions to kind of ask before we sign off. So the first one is, um, what is one piece of gear that you cannot live without? My Garmin. Uh, I just love my Garmin. Like for ultra running, it's my coach. It's, you know, how I pace myself. It's how I fuel everything. It's, uh, how I wake up too and other things. So I've been using Garmin products for as long as I've been doing endurance. And, um, I think with endurance, you don't always know how far you've gone, how far you have to go. You don't. And so, I have timers on it, like when I'm racing to know and remind myself, okay, you have to eat because sometimes when you're really in the zone or, you know, focused, you could forget and then that will cause problems. And so, uh, yeah, I think that I haven't done it yet, but I think there's actually a metronome too. And I think uh, for all my ultra marathons, I usually have some kind of uh, metronome because uh, most people are dominant on one leg and, um, that would cause problems all up the chain, maybe not for a 5k, but if you're out there for 10 or 20 hours, if you're, I mean, your shoulder, I've noticed some finisher pictures where like one is out of alignment. So even things like figuring out how, how to, you know, pace yourself in that way. So big fan, big fan of the Garmin. Very cool. I wasn't expecting that, but that all, that makes sense. Um, okay. Which do you prefer more adventuring solo or as a team or part of a group? 
I think it all depends. Like I just did a rollerblading adventure, a skate for water across the Florida Keys. And I just, without doing it with my friend, it would have been, I don't know. I just, it, it brought so much life and joy being able to share that with her. I would say generally speaking, probably with people um, because it's, you know, fun to share those moments and know that you have support and, you know, there, there's times you'll feel good. There's times you won't feel good. And having someone else around is not a bad thing. So, um, I think the biggest challenge for me is just like finding people who want to cycle across South America or do some of the outlanders things. And I know that I've structured my life in a way that, I have some more freedoms in that way, but um, yeah, that's, that is a challenge. Okay. And okay. My next question is what does downtime look like for you and what's your favorite way to rest? Uh, my friends and I are real big on puzzles. We even went camping together and we had our headlamps and we're doing puzzles. <laughs> Uh, more crafts but I'm also a van lifer so some of my crafting had you know there's not as much space for it but I do like crafts and like crocheting and I don't know just like checking out what people are making on Etsy uh, and I mean truthfully it's kind of what I think most people would enjoy like museums and um, just kind of seeing what's going on in, in their town and yeah. Checking out the world. And you said you're van, van lifing it. What does that mean? Okay. Well, I, I do, I'm, I guess I, I, I do work full time. So I'm not like traveling all around, but I, I am a van lifer. Some Coast Guard members will live in boats or houses and, um, or RVs. And so I, uh, I'm one of the van lifers. I, and so I live in a, a ProMaster and that actually helps with adventures and that kind of thing because it could be used during it. And I have more freedom and flexibility to do things without, you know, a house to worry about. Yeah, your house is with you on the road where you go. I know that's a, a thing where people adventure, myself and my parents, when we go traveling, it's like, oh, you got to find someone to look after the house. Well, I guess you can take care of business with you because it's yeah. on the road. So that's one less thing to have to manage and handle. Yeah. Shout out to my friend who's letting me chicken sit for her right now, because otherwise I'd be doing this interview from my van. <laughs> yes. To a house right now. Oh my gosh. I love that. My friend also, my friend was kind of in the middle of a transition moving back home here and living with her parents until she transitioned and found a place. So when I'd be like, Hey, we're going away for the weekend. Did you want to come here and watch the dogs? We have a doggy door and you can like have the bath and the, you know, the place yourself, your own bed. And she just loved it. So it was a win-win for both of us. We're like, yes, we have somebody we love and we trust there is in our home. The dogs love her. And she was like, Oh my gosh, I got a few minutes away from my family a couple of days. It was so good. So that's awesome. Yeah. If you uh, ever need some, a break, yeah. Look for someone to dog sit for or chicken sit. And this is my first time chicken sitting. <laughs> oh, I, I love it. 
<laughs> okay. So my last question is, do you have any hard limits? So is there anything that you have said no to, or you would never do, or is there something else that's on the horizon that you're like, this is my next challenge. This is what's going on. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm going to talk about what I do want to do rather than what I don't. What I do want to do is the row was part of a bigger uh, vision to go around the whole world by human power alone. So no motors or sails. So the, from the row, I'd like to cycle across South America, row the Pacific, probably land in Australia, cycle that, do some kayaking, do some more cycling and make my way back towards Africa. So that would be potentially a three-year journey to raise enough funds to help 100,000 people get clean water along the way. So that excites me. Uh, I guess like the boundaries and I, I really, I mean, a lot of the, the decisions are, are not like fear-based. I should do this. So my limits and my boundaries are, you know, uh, who's it going to benefit to do something you don't enjoy doing? And so I, I wouldn't do something unless I was passionate about it. And I mean, I do have a job outside of, you know, these endurance. So it's really just fun. And if it's not fun, it's not worth doing. And um, in, in, with endurance, like, it, yeah, it's uh, life is short. So should probably have some fun while you're doing these things. And so- yes. I love that. How cool is that that you get to see the world go on these incredible adventures, evolve and grow along the way. And I love that you brought it to that point in the very beginning. the first thing, one of the first things that you said is that it doesn't have to be terrible, like that you have the joy and the fun and, um, love doing it. So if what you love doing can benefit and help people around the world live a better quality of life, then like what a perfect match. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Okay. Lastly, where can everybody find you and how can people donate to this incredible water cause that you are a part of? Yeah. So I have a website that's, uh, Katie spots, K A T I E S P O T Z.com. And there is a donate button for uh, funding the next water projects in the Navajo Nation. And then I am on Facebook at Hello Katie Spots and Instagram at Katie Spots. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Okay, can I sneak in one more question that just popped up? Okay, what does your family think about all of this? Oh, yeah, so... In the early adventures, my parents had this thing where they're like, you know, especially with the row, they're like, they thought it was a phase that I was going through and I'd get over it and, you know, die off. And then I bought my rowboat and they're like, you're not doing this. And I'm like, I mean, I'm older than 18, so I didn't need the permission slip. I'm doing it. And so they, I mean, their role I, I think I would be concerned if my parents were like, yeah, go on the ocean with all those sharks. I mean, so they're, they're, they're parents, their parental in- instincts are strong. They want me to be safe. They want to, they'd rather me be safe at home. I mean, so that's their way of love at the time when they were like that, I'm like, oh, well, they just don't support me. And so there was a lot of 
tension. Um, but now it's to the point where like doing an Ironman, they're like, oh, sounds great. There's medical people there. And if I would have started with an Ironman, they'd be freaking out. But it's to the point where they wouldn't expect anything else but this. Like they would be shocked if I said that, um, I, I don't know, yeah, that, that I was kind of, you know, bought a house and did things that had more like lack of that freedom and flexibility. So it, it's, they expect it. And, and so, yeah. Um, but I mean, it is kind of when I did my, I get injured sometimes. That's what happens. Uh, I, when I tore my ACL from the rollerblading, it's to the point where it's like, oh, wow, we're surprised that hasn't happened sooner because it has been about a decade since I've had a major injury and because I do put my body to the test so much. But um, yeah, so that's kind of where it's at. They're like, yeah, we're surprised you haven't had that many issues because I haven't had overuse injuries. But I mean, there there's no endurance junkies in my family, but it, um, yeah, they... They uh, support me in the ways that they can. My dad and brother were at the end of my row, which was no small feat because I ended up two countries away from where I originally was expecting to. And my mom wrote me a hundred letters to open up one every day. And so they, they support in the way that they can. My dad's been to pretty much all of my races and um, yeah, family's there when they can be for sure. How cool. Yeah, I know. I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, my little guy, if he told me he was, you know, he's seven now, but like, what would my reaction be? So that's so cool that they support you in all of their ways and they can't see anything different now that you've just like, that's what I think. Like, is there anything that she won't do? I mean, I, the, the thought would never even pop up into my mind. Is there anything she can't do? I feel like that's, that's not even a thought. It's like, is there anything she won't do? Probably not. If it like lights you up and takes you on your next adventure and you feel that you want to climb every mountain, the tallest mountains in the world, I'm sure you would do that too. So yeah, thank you so much for hanging with me. This has been amazing. I feel like everybody's going to be so inspired to um, do the little thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of All Things Relatable. If you know someone that would relate to this episode and get value from it, please pass it along. Also, if this episode resonated with you, I would love for you to rate, review, and subscribe.